Hello, Internet, and welcome to another exciting episode of Never Stay Dead. I'm here with my co-host, Sleepy Reader, also known as Damien. Great to be here again, at last. I'm the Matt. Uh, This time, we're here to talk about something near and dear to my heart, which is some very early Ninja Turtles comics back from when Eastman and Laird were still doing them themselves. Right. Was this from, I think, 1984? Is that right? Uh, That's the initial issue. I think Donatello, which is the issue we're covering first off, is there... They did a what they called micro series for each turtle on their own, and we're doing the Donatello one, and that one was done in '86. '86, okay. So what we're going to do is we're going to talk about the Donatello one, and then we're going to go back and look at the first two or three issues of the original Ninja Turtles because I was able to get them digitally. I don't own them physically, and Matt has. You don't have the originals of the first three issues, do you? I don't have original printings of the first three issues, but I have them in many many printings. Oh, in many printings, right. So one of the tricks with the turtles is figuring out which ones to read first and and then finding them. I had to find them on two different digital platforms. Um, But anyway, we managed to work it out. Right. So as a little bit of a primer, because... It is hard to find this Donatello issue, and unless you're looking for it, you wouldn't necessarily find it. The way they've recollected the older Turtle stuff is kind of haphazard, and IDW doesn't get to do a good job of denoting the new stuff from the old stuff, and then which of the old stuff you're diving into. So, this was completely fresh for you, Damien, right? Like, you haven't really read... I never read any of the four issues that I've that we are discussing today. Right. I and read some Turtles, but they come much later in the publication history of Turtles. And you never read the old Eastman and Laird stuff? No, I just used to flip through it at the comic book store because I knew it was the hot comic of the moment. But okay. I had no idea it had any future beyond that. <laughs> That's fair. So, this Donatello issue was written when uh, Jack Kirby had passed and they wanted to do something of a tribute. And what's interesting to me is I just got to listen to Kevin Eastman at a convention I went to, and it seemed like there was more connection over Jack Kirby than Frank Miller, which is different than the way most people talk about it because of the first issue of Turtles connecting to Daredevil and there being more in that issue that is Frank Miller. But when they met initially, there was um, some signed piece of work Laird had from Kirby and Eastman saw that, and that's what sparked their initial conversation, was over a Kirby piece. And there's something about just the Ninja Turtles, the way they look, the way that they are, that does feel Kirby-esque to me more generally. Just, you know, these crazy creatures with uh, particular but humanistic traits in a yeah. way that feels more... You could see it inspired by Commandy, perhaps. <clears throat> right. Both both the Turtles and... Um... Uh, the rat, what's his name? Um, Splinter. Splinter. Both could have been characters in Commandy easily. And he was even talking about that, how Commandy was one of his favorite books and definitely played an influence. It's just the, the high concept of the first issue of the Turtles was referencing a lot of 
Frank Miller, even if that wasn't their deep influences. It was one of the hot books in the years previous to them putting out that first issue, I think. And that first issue was a total gag thing, and it was a gag right. for the moment when Daredevil is hot, so... Right. And Splinter instead of Stick, and the foot instead of the hand. <laughs> right, right. And uh, somewhere in there, isn't there a character who gets hit by a canister of radioactive material, which is from the Daredevil origin also. <laughs> um, so there's those things. But I can see what you mean, and, and particularly by starting with the Donatello issue here. <clears throat> it's clear the love for Kirby and Kirby's work is super deep with the original creators, Eastman and Laird. Right. I'm confused. So... Some other people may be ignorant as I am. Did they both draw? Yes, though how that worked out, I don't fully understand. Uh Um, So was it, do you think it was like one was slightly more of a penciler, but they both did penciling and then they both did inking or? Um, my understanding is there is a bit more passing back and forth, and you can almost see it as you flip through the pages, the way that the turtles rendered is different. Uh, the way certain characters are drawn becomes slightly different, but I feel like they both touched inks or pencils on any given image uh-huh. here. But I, I could be completely wrong. I, right. I don't know that. Um, yeah, and of course, another aspect just from the few issues I've read is that they're they're rapidly evolving as young artists would do. Um, so the, the Donatello issue has quite a... The figures are stronger and more solid than, say, the first issue of from two years before of the tur- Turtles. Right. Um, well, even... <coughs> we should well, get I'm here. I'm looking at a color one for Donatello, <coughs> so that may also skew my way of viewing it. Right. Um, there, there's a pretty drastic jump in the art between the first and second issue of the Ninja Turtles as well, though. Right. And I also noticed, I guess we should get back to this, I also noticed a big change in the, the layouts between issue one and two. Yeah. Um, I want to dive there, but maybe we should uh, get Why through don't the... Uh, shall I be, as I've always been, the summarizer, just quickly, very quickly summarize this issue of Donatello? Oh, sure. We can dive in on discussing it. It's, it's a very simple issue where, I guess Donatello's the one who's good at fixing things, so they send him down into the basement to fix the hot water problem, and instead he finds an artist down there named Kirby, and discovers all these weird creatures who attack him and then disappear, and then he finds, and then he chats with Kirby who has a magic gem attached, I guess an alien gem, not a magic gem, attached to his pencil which is making things come alive off the page. And one of the things that came alive is some weird Kirby device, Jack Kirby-looking device, that allows you to a portal into some other dimension. And in that dimension, all the weird characters that he's drawn are there fighting the local natives. And so Kirby and Donatello together help defeat Kirby's creations and save the natives. And then at the end, spoilers, uh, Donatello goes back through the shrinking portal and Kirby doesn't make it and he throws a little airplane, a little uh, fold-up airplane, you know, paper airplane through with a last note to uh, Donatello. And I'm trying to, the note was kind of odd. Let me find that. Do you remember what was on the note? Yeah, it was, uh, 
so in the course of the story, um, Kirby gra- uh, draws a graviton gun onto Donatello's arm, oh, <clears throat> which right. runs out of ammo, but he sends the sketch of that up with him. And then uh, I have to find it here, but there's... Uh, that pl- play- so it says, Don, life at best is bittersweet. Take care of yourself, Kirby. I almost wonder if that's something, since they met Jack Kirby in person, if he had said that to them at some point. Yeah, maybe. Now, the weird thing is, when you said this was in from 1986, and it was a tribute to him after his death, I thought, wait a minute, that sounds wrong to me. This reads like a tribute to him after his death. But Jack Kirby died in 1994. Oh! So that's funny, because it does seem like a tribute to someone after they're dead. <laughs> So I think I've just thrown you for a loop there. Yeah, no, I honestly thought that. I never thought to check that. I, I So the I, all the Kirby creations, they they you can see that they're Kirby-ish, but they also have the style of Eastman and Laird. So it's an interesting combo of the two. It's it's a lot of fun just visually to look at this issue. Um even if you didn't read it at all, you'd have a great time just looking at it. And in color, it looks fantastic, but I guess it originally was not in color. Right. And I'm looking at the black and white issue, and I mean, uh-huh. there's the tones and there's the Kirby-esque, but I feel like the color makes it feel more Kirby-esque because you get, like, a green creature and a blue creature. Right. And because Kirby was always... You always got Kirby presented to you in bright, <laughs> garish colors, so that's kind of what you're used to Kirby creatures in. Anyway, and it's... There's some kind of beautiful stuff like this splash page where they're coming through to the other dimension. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, you know, even though I would say, even though they're Kirby influenced, they also, they have a style that's not from mainstream comics at all. I wonder if there was someone in underground comics who also influenced them or maybe just came out that way. I mean, they were well mired with a handful of people at that point, And, uh, yeah. There's a there's an artist in that I vaguely remember from Underground Comics named Jackson J A X O N and some of their art reminds me of him and there's another Underground cartoonist whose name I can't remember anymore who their art also reminds me of and maybe they were a little bit influenced by Richard Corbin in a weird way I don't know I I believe it I mean Corbin was a big influence at that time and his name pops up <clears throat> I uh. Yeah, I'm sure there's a number of influences to what they do. And this is an interesting point because this is a little later in what's considered their initial run and before they kind of leave the book to be handled by a number of different creators. Right. In a sense, when the turtles grew too big for them. (laughs) Right. It was still a small two-guy operation at this point. Um. But yeah, so generally, you seem to enjoy this. Yeah, you you did a good job picking out something that would be, you know, hit my sweet spot there of nostalgia and fun. How did it strike you when you first read this? Do you remember when you first read it? I do. Um, To me, it was just some artist in the basement named Kirby. Like, that didn't... Right. Registers anything. <laughs> but I've always loved this issue, and I, I just thought it was such a cool idea. And I should note, this issue was adapted for the 2003 Turtles cartoon series, somewhere in that run. Oh, really? Um, and they have some fun with that. And they give Kirby the, uh, was it Brooklyn accent? Oh, okay. 
I don't know if he came from Brooklyn or where, where in New York City. I forget. Up, but yeah, which probably accent, Brooklyn. Then. Brooklyn seems to be the place people back then always grew up in. But um, yeah, I wonder. Did, so have you seen the animated version? I have. Um, and do they manage to capture the Kirby quality of it there too? Or? They do, but animating some of these creatures and ideas just doesn't pan out the same. The comics definitely the better, the better take. Right. Uh, there's no fat, and they have to throw in a little bit of a B plot with the other turtles and what they're doing at the time, so that they can pad out a half an hour because this is a one and done issue, and it right. There's not a lot. There's no, like you say, no B plot, no extra detail. And there's uh, there's a lot of reveling in the art and just having fun with the moment and not so much this uh, big build-up. Right. I mean, this is definitely, you know, an issue... Again, you picked it for me because I'm a, a neophyte on the, on the Turtles. It's an issue that anyone could read. You wouldn't really have to know anything about the Turtles. And there's no hanging thread. Of, oh, no, I won't know. I need to know next issue what's going to happen. But it's just... A pure one and done. Right. Yeah, and for that, I mean, you know, it's a very joyful issue. It's very big on celebrating Kirby. But I I don't know if there's too much to chew on here. I guess the only other thing I can think of is at the end of the issue, there's a little moment between Raph and Don. Raph asks, you know, what happened with the shower wise guy, basically. And Don just shoots him a look and gets him to back off for a moment. I did feel bad for him, like he was waiting for the shower. <laughs> yeah, well, for a guy who lives in the sewer, I don't know how much it really matters. Yeah. I wonder, though, now I'd love to hear, since it wasn't before his death, I mean, after his death, it was such a cool touch to have him throw a paper airplane with a note to Donatello. But did they ever, like, go back to that dimension? And you could almost imagine they'll see Kirby again. To my knowledge, I haven't read everything, but I, I don't think right. they ever do. And uh, so also this idea of the alien gem that makes things come true, that doesn't ever reoccur either. Not really, no. I mean, this is very much a self-contained thing, which is funny because they take a lot of weird things and carry them forward later. But this is one thing I think they just let sit. Right. I mean, if you think in terms of, if we're talking about influence... That you have Jack Kirby in your basement, in your subconscious. And then, you know, you you go off on a dream adventure with him, which most Jack Kirby comics were like a dream adventure. And then uh, he passes the torch on to you and disappears into the dream. It's very much sort of giving a high five to your influences, but also then moving on from them in a way. Right. With the blessing of, and Kirby, of course, did not want people to be his imitators. So he would, the fact that the Turtles don't carry their Kirby influence very heavily would probably, or the the original creators of the Turtles, would probably be preferable to Jack Kirby than someone who just imitates his style, like, say, Keith Geffen or, at times, Rich Buckler and those people. Right. Yeah, no, and I mean, this issue, they lean on it more because they're... Right. They're literally doing Kirby creatures and Kirby science tech. Right. As but, he literally drew them into the story. It, right. It's such a crazy hook, you know. It's, yeah. uh, it's pretty fascinating. 
Kirby things look so good. You know, there's always a part of me that wish, why didn't they use more Kirby creatures in other issues? But I think it's good that they go their own way. Well, and it's funny, too, because you can see some influence with the... Uh, it's basically right past uh, where you read on the regular stuff, but once you introduce the Triceratons and the Fugitoid and whatnot, like, you uh-huh. can see more of that there, but it is still their own their own deal. Well, that's cool. Yeah, I mean, the... It's interesting in general to talk a comic book that, you know, back when I just flipped through the pages and didn't buy it, was just looked like something that was just about other comics and wasn't about itself at all. Um, on the surface, that's what I thought it was. That it turns out to be something that carries its influences in a good way rather than being overpowered by them or anything like that. So that's right. kind of an interesting victory of creativity in an unexpected place. Yeah. Um, you want to just talk about the first three issues, or talk about issue one of the... Uh... Well, see, I feel like we should talk about issue one first, because issue one was, again, a one-shot, and it was very much its own bag. Right. Um, so, I mean, yeah, I mean, you can hear about this in a million different places, but it was it was a one-shot. They, they poured everything into this, uh, giving it a shot, thinking, you know, they're going to have a ton of extra copies to burn for warmth over the winter and instead it sold out and caught on in a big way. Right. And it, people probably, most people probably don't know anymore, but it set off a wave of black and white comics, often about goofy animal things, spoofing something else. I'm trying to think of some of the names, but there was ones about, um, rabbits and there was the fish police, I think, and various things. So there was a, it was a huge, and people started for a short while. It was like a speculator bubble during, I don't know what year in the 80s, obviously after 1984, maybe 85 or 86, where any black and white published comic would get huge pre-orders and people would make $100,000 off their first issue and stuff in $1980. Um, so I read about, the, I, I had known there was this black and white boom, but I didn't realize how financially lucrative it was till I read this um History of Comic Book Stores that's out. Um, I don't have the exact title of that, but um, there's a there's a re- fairly recent book out about the history of co- the direct market comic book store. And so uh, people were people were doing an issue or two of a black and white comic and leaving their job because they were making so much money. And of course, it all collapsed within a year. Right. And it's all the fault of the Ninja Turtles becoming so valuable. But uh, before the collapse. Turtles, there was Cerebus and... Usagi Jimbo is right behind, but kind of it's... Yeah, certainly Cerebus is a huge influence on it, but Cerebus did not have caused this explosion. They caused this explosion. Not, I mean, because they were popular and their book became collectible, then that caused a speculative speculative explosion. And probably good things came of it, too, along with all the trash. There were probably some good black and white comics like Usagi Jimbo that maybe came into being because there was money available. I think Usagi was on its way. Turtles just happened to get out the door first. Um, and for all I know, I mean, I don't really know, but it may have given a boost to Cerebus. Um, well, yeah, and there was a Cerebus-Turtles team-up pretty early into the Turtles. Oh, was there? <laughs> um, it's actually one of the harder ones to get. Yeah. And you can't help but wonder that all of this stuff, I mean, everything feeds into the next thing, so it probably fed into the next 
wave of artists who became hot and formed image comics and all that speculative bubble. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, this is a pretty big thing in that, you know, it's not Marvel, it's not DC. These are just some guys trying to make some comics and striking it big. So summarizing issue one of the original Ninja Turtles is a bit harder. It's this convoluted origin story involving Splinter and how he would imitate his master. He was a pet rat of a kung fu master. And then there was... Shredder? Shredder. Or Orokusaki. So there was a whole thing of a revenge thing between the kung fu master and Shredder. And then that was passed on to Splinter, the the um, rat, pet rat, who becomes slightly evolved because of radiation that also turns these baby turtles into uh, overly intelligent <clears throat> turtles that he trains from babyhood to be ninja masters. Right. And then they ultimately have to get revenge against the whole... They've raised their entire life to get revenge against Shredder, I guess, and ultimately they get revenge against Shredder. Does it, take, it takes all four of them fighting together, right, to kill Shredder, and that's the trick. Right. So it's much, even though there's reference to the teen, Teenage Mutants, it's much more a take on <clears throat> that whole Frank Miller stick-in-the-hand stuff. Right. But I, even there, it doesn't, it, beyond those names and concepts, it's, it's almost like some weird B-movie horror movie almost only it's done goofy (laughs) right and the turtles don't really have personalities in here they're all part of their well-oiled machine and they're all kind of dour and straight Um, but drawn to look totally goofy so the the humor is only the difference between the seriousness of the story and the goofy look of the characters right right there's no other humor in it that i could tell well i think part of the joke might have played better at the time because i mean this is a point where marvel and dc were taking themselves so seriously despite the fact that they're built on right all this goofy stuff and to just not have that legacy and to just start there i i think resonated in a way that yeah yeah the super seriousness was what was kind of popular in comics at that time even though they hadn't reached the age of grimness yet or the the dark age of comics, but it really was already building up. Right. So they were kind of an antidote there. It's hard to tell fully what the creator's intentions were, and maybe they didn't know themselves, of whether they were doing something funny or serious. I They knew it was goofy as heck, and that was uh-huh. a lot of what Eastman was saying, is they came up with the most ridiculous thing they could think of, and then the more they drilled in on it, they were like, there's something here, you know? There's... It was just a fun look. It was a creative idea that just carried through. And to me, the layouts, like the panel layouts and and the way the backgrounds and the figures are handled, is reminiscent of Frank Miller of the early 80s in Daredevil. But the actual drawing style has nothing to do with it. And it to me, it looks, like I said, kind of like an underground comic almost. Yeah, you can tell they're hand-drawn panels because they have this wavy line. Right, right. That's thick ink. Um, and and, and the they layouts. very heavily use this gray tone, um, which I assume was stuff that they laboriously glued onto the paper. Back then, you had to get these little dots on oh, the right. sticky paper, and you would cut it out and put it on your picture. Right. They're called Bende dots, I believe. So they use that heavily, heavily. 
which is a lot of work, I think. I'm not sure. I kind of wish they used it a little less. <laughs> but anyway. But there's definitely this look to the turtles. Mm-hmm. And then the second you jump to the second issue, it's a dramatic shift. Agreed. I mean, get to the second issue. And in the second issue, the turtles are developing more personality pretty quickly. Right. You can kind of tell which one's supposed to be a Donatello or a Raphael right. pretty quickly. Although I have to say, because I haven't delved deeply enough, I tend to forget who has which personality still, what? since they all look the same. And it's still developing. It's not 100% there yet. So right. it, you could definitely be forgiven until much later. Yeah. And they aren't using Frank Miller layouts anymore, and it's more just looks like a more standard comic book layout, maybe more the layout you'd see in a underground comic in a sense because there's more panels per page than in a marvel or dc comic often but and we're we quickly expand out the the cast there there the turtles are tooling around uh and watching some tv and then they hear about these experimental mousers and then there's baxter stockman and april o'neill introduced just right in the same breath and april o'neill i know becomes a major part of their story, but does this Baxter guy keep showing up? Or uh, he does, though not nearly as frequently. Uh-huh. But he's uh, he's a component to a lot of the turtles going forward. He's the second big bad. So. If I d- didn't already know who April was, I would have thought she wasn't going to appear for more than a few pages. So it's interesting how she ends up kind of becoming so such a big part of the story. And she does kind of disappear for a while early on. Oh, does she? Okay. So maybe they didn't realize that early on how much they wanted to have her as part of the story. Um, I think the connection to humanity is interesting, but they go way out very quickly. And so, yeah, April April isn't, isn't there and they go to Dimension X. Oh, okay. I didn't know they went to Dimension X. I love the splash page where she first meets them. It's very funny, and yet it's drawn so serious at the same time. It's an even better take on that funny versus serious than in the first issue. She meets them down the sewer, and they're holding a dead mouser. Mm -hmm. The mousers are robots that this guy Baxter creates to kill all rats in New York City, but he's secretly going to use them to uh, blackmail New York City He'll destroy buildings with them unless New York City pays him lots of money. Right. Sorry, yeah, that's right. I am trying to remember because I've known what a mouser was since I was a... since before I could read, so I never really thought to question it. Do the mousers return? Um, They're part of the early cartoon, which is where I first saw the turtles, definitely, and yeah. Like, like many things, I was first introduced to these characters through the cartoons and not the comics. And then carried through. Oh, okay. So when, by the time you read the comics, all of these characters in a slightly different form were familiar to you. Right. Um, and by the time I read these comics, I had read other comics where they were more developed. Because it took more effort to get a lot of these earlier issues one form or another. Since they right. were so easily uh, found in reprints. So do you think, were you, when you first read the early issues, do you think you were disappointed by them, or did they seem richer to you because you already knew all the future of these characters? I, 
I don't know. I mean, I, I enjoyed it, but to me, like, I had been watching the cartoon when I found out about the comics and everything in my mind. Those were the real turtles and whatnot. So that's where so I... So you, you were excited to finally get to the real turtles? Yeah. I mean, no. they were the darker, edgier thing. And so right. as a kid, you're like, oh, this is this is cool, man. And I, I still but love it, so... Were you kind of pre-sold on it? Like, you already knew you loved the Turtles, and now you were reading the real Turtles. Well, it's or funny... they have to prove themselves to you? So these early issues, definitely. But um, like I was saying, there's a chunk of time where uh, Eastman and Laird gave the Turtles to any given creator. And there's some good issues in there. But there are some stinkers or some stuff that's way out there. And when I found those issues, I was going, this is what it is? And it took me a while to piece that all together. And I realized, you know, there were some takes that I liked and some I didn't. But when I understood it was just other artists and creators coming onto this weird kooky book and kind of doing their own take or their own weird story with it, I came around to liking some of them more because I wasn't looking for the real deal turtles in it anymore. I was just looking for a good story. So in a way, one needs a curated selection that starts from the beginning and then skips bits that just are a distraction from who the real turtles are. Yes. Full story of the real turtles. It's funny because IDW and their recollections have done that. So they have these big classic collections. The Ultimate Collection, I think, is the easiest ones to find. Uh Those are in black and white with notes. Oh, okay. Um, What I went for, because I own a lot of the stuff in black and white already, was going for the works, where they take out the extra notes, but they give you a recoloring. It's a digital recoloring, or coloring in many cases. Right, not a recoloring, a first right. coloring. Um, and, and those are nice, and, and they have a quality to them, but they're very IDW, so there's a lot of like ink highlights that don't necessarily need to be there that they lean on whatnot. And I preferred, um, back in the day, the Turtles books were colored, and they only got through four collections, but by this thing called First Graphic Novel that has uh-huh. long since gone defunct. I, I like that coloring more because it's a more traditional 80s coloring where it ha- you have the digital separation, but it was more uh, lively, none brighter of, colors. None of the gradients and things like that. Yeah. But the IDW stuff is just hard to parse because you have those collections, which will focus on the Eastman Laird stuff, and maybe a handful of things from like Turtle Soup or other weird little oddities they did. And then um, they have a collected volume two of the Turtles. Um, they just started recollecting the image volume of the Ninja Turtles. Mm-hmm. And, and some of that in-between stuff, um, there's one uh, labeled around Soul's Winter with, uh, I believe it's Mike Zek was the guy. Um, they recollected that one very early on. It was supposed to be the series of the more bizarre out there Turtles collections. And they uh-huh. haven't. So they just have this one line of Turtles collections with one book. <laughs> yeah, so in a way you could have, like, the stuff that really doesn't fit what Laird and Eastman doing as, like, B-sides, where you collect the B-sides on a separate collection or something. Yeah, and even digitally it's hard, because, like, this Donatello issue, like you are saying, is just, you can grab that issue, but it's not part of any mm-hmm. larger collection. I've got so the issues two and three kind of are telling this one story about the Mousers and how they defeat this Baxter guy, um, and it's a fun action book. What really stood and and the turtles have more personality and they introduce 
April, who is kind of who accepts them very quickly, but is still kind of a nice something different from just a turtle and a rat. Mm -hmm. um, but what I really noticed is by the third issue, I really was loving the art, and it really did. It, it leaned even stronger on that feeling of a a well done well done underground cartoon art. It felt I'm looking at it now, and it, it does have a lot of a black and white Corbin feel to, to it. And it's really pretty amazing black and white art. I'm kind of glad I'm not... The first two issues I might have liked colored, but I'm kind of glad issue three I'm seeing in black and white. Um, yeah, and... So that definitely makes me want to read more more of this. And that's some of the charm of this early turtle stuff, is like reading early Strangers in Paradise or early Cerebus or something. You're right. watching these artists grow as they go through the book, and it almost feels like an element to the story... It gives it a little more charm when you return to it or look at other things. And and we're also we're starting to get this feeling of a story that's going to go on a long time with lots of threads. So Splinter's been separated from the group, and there's this incredible splash page at the end. I don't know. I guess I can... Can I give it away or whatever? But the people who are controlling what is the company... Anyway, they're all... There are these horror alien creatures inside of human bodies that's drawn in a really intense way. <laughs> and definitely, totally an uh, underground horror comic vibe at that point. You would not have seen anything like this in a uh, mainstream comic in 1986 or 84. <clears throat> Which probably is not something you would have been aware of. But if I had read this back then, that would have... Uh... That's something I'm wondering about too now that you bring that up. Is I mean, the turtles weren't flying with the code so they were allowed to do stuff when marvel and dc weren't so i wonder if that's part of the appeal too is this is you know underground dark edgy in a way right. that i hadn't considered that before i mean i knew the turtles were supposed to be darker yeah. and edgier but if i had picked up this third issue back in the day in the mid 80s when i was in comic book stores and didn't know that it was didn't have this preconceived notion that it was just this simple spoof on other comics I would have gone, wow, I've discovered this really cool underground comic that's not like anything else. But anyway, I didn't. Unfortunately, I did not. I mean, I understand, it's understandable. It's it's an odd take. And part of the reason I'm able to gravitate to that is I didn't get very far, but I started reading Elephant Man. When I first saw it, I was like, oh, what a, what a weird goof. What a silly thing and then i was looking i was like well this is probably like how people felt about the turtles if they didn't grow up with them i have never read elephant men yet i always and now i'm intimidated because there's so many issues of it out there but. right and i, I kind of got intimidated myself but i read through a few and it was enjoyable it's very dense read do you know if that's something you need to read from the beginning or can you just pick it up i don't know most people listening probably haven't even heard of Elf. I've just sort of seen it on and off. I don't it must hardly sell it all. But now it's going to be one of those Amazon originals or Comixology originals. So that must mean it must... Maybe it's yeah. sold well in book form or something. Right. Or maybe they see some quality in it and think uh, right. a little different highlight it will pop through. Or they got conned by the person writing it into thinking it was a successful comic that they could move into the Amazon. Anyway, it's kept going for, I don't know, a hundred issues or something. I don't know how far Elephant Man has gotten, but it's had a very long run. So someone's been buying it. 
So it's funny now that I'm thinking about it, in comparison to, say, um, Cerebus or something, part of the appeal of the Turtles is that it's a lighter, more action-oriented, take-in-the-art, have-a-fun-ride right. kind of story. Right. And for that, I, I'm looking at it now and realizing there might be a little less to dive into, but it, I, I got a thrill reading through these again and seeing that they yeah. held up once again after not reading them for a few years. Well, not everything we read do we have to have deep thoughts about, but I'm really glad I read it. And I do, I do, because I've known your passion for the turtles and a few other things over the years. I just do always wonder how the, do you think the turtles like had some intrinsic quality to them that hooked into your, your psyche and remain a permanent thing that you always like? Or do you think it's just because they continue to have good comics, if you see what I'm saying. Oh, um, well, I mean, yeah, I mean, I loved the cartoon as a kid, and that stuck with me, but I mean, they were also my first exposure to the four humors in that idea. Uh-huh. Um, and so, yeah, later on, I mean, I definitely fell out of love with the Turtles for a while back when they were publishing Volume 4, and I picked up a few issues, and I didn't particularly like it, and Volume 4 is basically lost to time. You can't find it anymore. Um, huh. And that was Laird's exclusive take with the Turtles. Okay. Um, I, I kind of didn't like it, but it caused me to revisit and finish collecting a lot of the older Turtles books when they weren't a hot item. You could find a lot of scattered issues at the bookshop. And I, I pieced together over years the final dozen of the initial run, which is the story arc called City at War. Uh-huh. And I loved that story, and every time I picked up a new issue, I'd read my associated chunks and pull through till I finalized it, which was a decade later. One of the issues was impossible to find. <laughs> and it was one of the middle ones, too, which drove me nuts. Right. Um, and so I, I always kind of knew there was parts of the Turtles I liked, but I just figured, you know... They were fun, they were around for a while, and they kind of just fell off the map. Right. And then the IDW series was starting up, and I remember hearing about it and thinking, all right, let's give this a go. I've always liked the Turtles, you know, it's a fresh new take. And by the IDW series, you mean the one that's still ongoing, right? Yes, that's the... Yeah, uh, I just want to be clear, because I, I wasn't totally sure if there was more than one IDW series. Oh, that's right. Uh, technically, there are now, um, since this series has gone on. And I I don't know if it's IDW's biggest hit, but it is uh -huh. one of their bigger hits. Right. They've given this Turtles book a number of B-books, and they all tie to the story. But you'll have an offshoot of Bebop right. and Rocksteady, or they did the micro-issue thing with all the Turtles again. Right. Did they do a time a side story where there's time travel or something like that? Yes. They've done time travel, universe hopping. I mean, it's the turtles, so you yeah. kinda do it all. And then of course they did two team up books with Batman, which I'm sure thrilled you to no end. Yeah, I actually got to hear a lot about those books at uh Temper Comic Con recently because they had both of the main creators there. Yeah. And with it was Tinian and yeah, Tinian and uh, Freddie Williams the Third. Oh, the artist Freddie Williams the Third. Yeah. Yeah. And so, did that make you like, or did you already like it? I know it was very popular, but I know you're not a fan of Batman so much. Well, I mean, it's so not like I dislike Batman. Batman completely. I just, right. I, 
he's not my favorite character. You're a bit cynical about the hype about Batman. Well, yeah, Tom King's Batman in particular. As discussed, we don't need to yes. go there. Um, but the, the well, We ba- could say that things have only gotten worse with Tom King's Batman. <laughs> right. But the Turtles Batman one is a fun take between the two universes. The only part I don't like is the general reverence the Turtles have for Batman for not a lot of reason. Right. Um, but it, yeah, it's a fun play. They're aware of who Batman is, or just once they meet him, they have reverence for him. They, they do make the universe bending part of the story in the crossover, and so mm-hmm. Batman basically whips them, and they they hold respect because he was able to, you know, right. warriors respect kind of thing. So this IDW run for you has maintained the quality, and that allows you to maintain your love for the turtles. Yeah, and at this point, I mean, they're um, they're deep, deep into it. I mean, they're past 75, and I uh, that that's a lot. And then with all the B-books, they're well over 100 right. uh, issues. So that's a, ma- a massive run, if it ha- and if it's relatively consistent, that's quite an achievement. It is, except for there's... there's points where the art duties fall off and there, uh-huh. there's one recent issue in particular where uh the artist wasn't even drawing feet they're just like little stick figure l's or oh, whatever boy. and i wow. i wrote in and said look that's guys sad. you guys play with art and let different artists come on and that's great but this was not there maybe that was the sign of using a, a cheaper artist to save money or something who knows i mean yeah. they, they do they've perhaps... had some very good artists on it Right. It, it, they have different styles. Like, they really let the artists go out there, but sometimes I think when you go too far down the experimentation hole, you let things slide that need to be held up to. Well, it's an interesting revival, because a lot of, generally, things just fade into the past, um, especially when they're not backed by a giant corporation. Um, of course, the Ninja Turtles have had a lot of media iterations, too, which probably doesn't hurt right? in terms of keeping the comic book going. But still, for a 100-plus a issues of relatively consistent work is awfully nice this late in the game, you know, after they've been a property for so long. Right, and it's an interesting place because whereas the Turtles are owned by Nickelodeon, IDW has this comic license... Um, Eastman's on it, you know, you have one of the co-creators still on it, and then you have, uh, Waltz doing the writing, and he's been knocking it out of the park. And I think that's part of the reason why the Turtles comic has held maybe a little stronger fan base than, say, the Transformers or G.I. Joe comics that they're running. And they always push Transformers and G.I. Joe, but it looks like they have more subtitles in their series and more reboots and side starts whatnot right because the money probably is in just single volume collections or something for something like transformers someone's like "Ooh, i like transformers and just grab one volume but not get sucked into the story enough to keep buying volume after volume well i mean i know there's massive transformers fans out there and i'm sure they're enjoying what they're getting on some of them have their ups and downs but to me, I, there's something about the fact that Turtles has been able to run for so long on its own with building. Because this is like, when Marvel did the Ultimate Universe, they kind of took all these different elements from the characters and built it up into this new, fresher thing. That's what this Turtle run is 
and it just feels more natural with it, and they've carried uh-huh. through in a way that feels more creative. Cool. Well, they still have a chance, then, to bring this Kirby character back. Yeah, they, they could bring that Kirby <laughs> character in. That, I, I'm actually he's off in that pocket dimension, you know, who knows what he's been up to. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and that since they're listening to this podcast, they now are, should feel free to steal that idea. Oh, or... <laughs> certainly. Certainly they are. Okay, well, do you have any other big picture things you want to say about the turtles, or we pretty much covered your kind of turtle passion? I, I yeah, I mean, I guess it's been an opportunity for me to rant about the turtles, which is great. <laughs> I, I mean, it sounds very good. I mean, it, uh, I think the difference between you and me is I can read some turtles and they'll be good, but I don't have a deep down love for the turtles the way perhaps certain characters. Like if I find out that Batman's being done really well, then of course I want to read it. If I find out the tur- turtles are reading, doing very well, being done very well, I'll be like, oh, I might like to read that. You know, the difference yeah. between a character that has its hooks in your subconscious and not, or not. Definitely. I, I hear you. And that's why I was kind of probing as to if there was something about the turtles that hooked you early on about, is it the four characters? And you said the four humors, so maybe that's... That's partially the key to it. Or, you know, you also like comics that have a certain kind of sense of humor to them. Uh, you've always leaned towards certain humorous characters, like the, what is it, Robo? Atomic Robo. Atomic Robo. Or, early Deadpool, or certain parts of early Deadpool. Or even and, Spider-Man in general. And Spider-Man has always been a more humorous character when done right. Yeah. Um, I, I've never taken to the super upstart, uh, you know, straight-laced heroes as much or this overly dour ones right so and batman obviously the only humor is in the bizarre criminals not in the character himself right even there they don't even like making those bizarre criminals humorous anymore yeah i mean i like my comics generally to be fun maybe be a bit lighter but i think what's what you're hitting on with the turtles is like the humor is there but it's almost because you're reading this goofy thing, but they're taking it fairly seriously. Like, they're playing the right. joke straight. Do they at all, like, represent a group of friends or family that you wish you had or that you did have? An ideal of any sort? I mean, I, I to me, like, I guess on some level, like, having that group of people where you're able to joke around with them and you're able to disagree, but at the end of the day, you come back right. together... It, to me, it, they do hit and they read more like a family than, say, the Fantastic Four do. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> but I, because of childhood reading, really love Ben Grimm right. in that family kind of way. But anyway, I see what you mean. And that's not to say anything against the Fantastic Four, but the Fantastic yeah. Four feel like, well, it feels like there are three very different people, and then there's Sue and Johnny, who are <laughs> actually family. Right. And, yeah, Ben Grimm seems like a great friend, but he doesn't feel like a family member to them because right. he's so, he has a different dialect, you know, he's built different, He's has different considerations, wants and needs, and the Turtles all feel, they have their tax, but they have more of a core that they share. Right. Yeah. That's my feeling, anyways. I don't know what you think about that. In a way, to me, they seem like a, a group of drinking buddies who become great friends over the years and, <laughs> and joke around with each other, but always come through in the end for each other. 
more than family, but maybe they're like family. That's funny. Um, there was a wizard list way back in the day that I remember that was which uh, superhero is most likely to get into a bar fight, and Raphael was way, way up there. <laughs> okay, well, maybe that's a good note on which to end this episode of Never Stay Dead. Yeah. Um, have the turtles ever died and come back? Uh, yes. Ah, good. Then they fit in with our theme. Because otherwise we just have to throw this whole episode out. Oh, yeah. No, can't do that. <laughs> well, um, we never stay dead, so we will be back soon. With more Fantastic Four talk. <laughs> Unfortunately for Matt. No, it's all good. <laughs> <laughs> Bye, everyone.